Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Sir, how are you doing this evening? Very well, David. Very well. Looking forward to another fun episode. Good. Excellent. Well, I have been keeping myself busy at home over this weekend because the house next door to us is condemned. It's going to be torn down soon, but it's my belief that there are probably dead animals in it. And wherever there are dead animals, there are going to be flies. So we've had some issues. You know, this is an older house. I, I believe it's uh, was built in the 60s. And so they're getting in somehow, and I haven't been able to figure out how. I've laid my traps around the yard. But uh, they get in, nevertheless. And working with a fly swatter is a pain in the ass, as I'm sure you know, because flies naturally like to hang out in corners. They're attracted to corners. And you can't hit them with a fly swatter when they're behind blinds, when they're in corners. So I was in Academy, which is a sporting goods store here in America for our non-American listeners. And I was looking with my with my father-in-law at uh, different laser sights for his pistols. So this is Oklahoma, just so that you know. Very common. <laughs> and at the checkout line with all the candy and soda pop, was this thing called the Bug-A-Salt, the Bug Assault Salt Gun. So it looks like a big Nerf gun, and what you do is you pour table salt into the hole at the top, you cock it like it's a shotgun, and it fires a round of salt at the flies and completely decimates them. doesn't do anything to your windows or walls or anything like that, but you get to turn life into this sort of video game where I'm now the, the fly terminator. So I've been going around my house, uh, you know, eating steak and, and blasting flies off my wall. It's been amazing. <laughs> oh my, oh my. <laughs> well, while you're shooting flies with salt, I'm playing my new metal drum tuned to the pygmy scale. So I think we have the whole spectrum covered there. Yeah, we really do. We like doing our own little things. It keeps us uh, offline and engaged. Absolutely. It does. Although, I, I think before that house gets torn down, I think you really need to make a midnight recon sort of trip over there, you know, mm -hmm. and, and do mm -hmm. some ghost recording. Uh, I mean, maybe there aren't dead animals there, or, or maybe there are more animals than you think, you know? Yep. Well, there is definitely a possum in my backyard that my dog is currently obsessed with. She keeps wanting to go out back and just sniff this one spot of the concrete. I have to assume that an animal has urinated on it and she is fixated on catching whatever this thing is. And I've seen possums flitting back and forth here and there. So I have to assume that if I do go in there to make a ghost recording, I, I might need something bigger than a salt gun for whatever potential critters have made their home in this abandoned house. It's a beautiful house. I would have loved to have seen it when it was in its prime. It's, it's beautiful, but uh, now it's all boarded up and local children have smashed out all the windows and torn off some of the siding. So kind of actually sad to see a house degrade like that. If I'm being completely honest. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's uh, I mean, I love to photograph those, those sorts of, uh, you know, that kind of decay, I think that if you can preserve it in some way, you should, you know, um, right? because right. It, it will go and then it will be gone. And then, you know, it, it'll they'll replace it with some, yeah, they'll replace it with some 
you know, modern abomination. <laughs> they'll, exactly. put, put up a co- they'll put up a coffee shop. Oh, heaven forbid. I shouldn't even, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm knocking on wood right now just to keep that from happening to my beautiful neighborhood. Well, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay. Well, I think that there is a quite an interesting topic that we'll get to, but as a way of laying the groundwork for that, I wanted to connect back to how we ended the last episode, which was with Rilke's probably his most famous poem on the archaic torso of Apollo. And I wanted to it made me think of uh, the poet James Wright, who was very, very important to me when I was growing up. Uh, my first published poems nationally appeared alongside his last. Um, and he was a, a really, really important voice in, in American poetry. His son was as well. They were the, the only two father and son uh, combinations to ever both win the Pulitzer Prize. But I thought I'd start off with one of his most famous poems, which is a very distinctive James Wright sort of title, Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. I think many people who follow poetry will know this poem. Over my head I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk, blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines, the droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on, A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. I have wasted my life. Now, I I wanted to start with that because I think it's such an important counterpoint to the Rilke poem. Um, As I said, I love Wright's poems, uh, but I find a lot wrong with this. Um, I I think, first of all, uh, strangely enough, I've been around a lot of dairy farms in my life, (laughs) And I've never heard a cowbell out in the field. I've only heard one on stage as a musical instrument. Um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's a kind of a mannered quality to this, um, sort of like Gray's Elegy mixed with uh, a basho haiku on extended play. But it's that last line that gets me. I have wasted my life, mm-hmm. which is such mm-hmm. a contrast to what Rilke leaves us with. <clears throat> Rilke really leaves us with a great challenge you must change your life. But in a way, I think it's, it's, it's not confrontational. To, to me, it's inspiring. It says I can change, that I have the power to do that. Whereas I find a kind of world weariness, and to use a, a, a phrase of yours that I really love, poisoned by irony uh, in, in the mm. right line. It, 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 seems, it feels like a joke kind of, doesn't it? Well, it does. It, it seems kind of like a, a kind of... Uh, flaccid sort of punchline to me. Um, 
And, and I don't think Wright felt like he wasted his life. He came from the Gritsville of Martins Ferry, Ohio. And I think he was very proud of speaking many languages and winning a Pulitzer Prize. So I think there's something kind of, uh, well, not to put too fine a term on it, I, I think there's something sort of impotent about it. It, it just doesn't, mm. certainly insincere. Whereas Rilke comes out with this, you know, this powerful sense of, you know, there is nowhere that does not see you. You must change mm. your life. And when you maybe first read that, you think, oh, geez, that, that's got me in the corner. You know, that, that, that's, that's confrontational. But I, I suggest that when you think about that a little bit more, it's, it's very uh, inspiring in the sense that it gives you, it gives you hope. It, it says that you can make a change. And I think if we want to uh, pursue that into our topic for uh, this episode, looking at the issue of empathy, which is a very, very popular word. We can run a linguistics analysis and see just how much coverage that word is getting in media and popular culture now, whether or not we actually understand it. But I have a feeling that many people would see the right sort of poem of I have wasted my life, you know, have you wasted your life too, you know, as being mm -hmm. a kind of more empathetic starting point, less confrontational. So we've already got a, a binary, don't we? That's my point. We've got a binary that empathy is non-confrontational. And so that's kind of what I'd like to kick to you is what you think about that as a binary. We don't like binaries. We're trying to break out of them. What do you think about that? <clears throat> I like that a lot. I see the binary that you're presenting as being completely true. And it reminds me as somebody who gets on the internet perhaps too much as being very resonant for what I see when I get on something like Twitter. A lot of the humor, a lot of the comedy, a lot of the mini blogs that people do when they're tweeting are essentially writes poem in 280 characters or less. There's a lot of things that go like that. This is not an exact tweet, but this is sort of the, the gist of very many tweets that I see. Went to work, went home, ate a bunch of ice cream, cried about what's going on in the world today. Uh, anybody else feel this way? And you'll see it's 100,000 likes and retweets. So this is a very easy, empathetic style of tweeting that is going to get you a lot of engagement from people because a lot of people on a day-to-day -day basis see themselves as put upon, as unable to raise themselves up above their circumstances and, and able to do things that get them out of their ruts. And so you end up with this cycle. I've thought this for a very, very long time, that these kind of tweets are doing the opposite of maybe what they should be doing, which is confronting you. So you go to the Rilke poem, you must change your life, right? I can already hear the voices of the protesters for this 
who would say, well, I can't change my life because X, Y, Z. But Rilke anticipates this with the line before that that says, there is no place that does not see you. What that means to me, the way that I interpret that, is that when you're feeling at your lowest, when you just want to kick back and have a beer, that place is still seeing you. You're still on. There's never a point where you're turning the mic off and you're away from the quote-unquote audience. You always have to be engaged and you always have to be thinking of ways that you can potentially change your life. You could potentially make yourself better than you were the day before. And this idea has, unfortunately, in my opinion, really fallen out of favor with modern Americans. There's a sort of romanticization of being hopeless. Does that resonate with you? <laughs> oh, well, if for, if fortunately, I, I'd like to th- say it doesn't resonate with me personally in that sense, but it's certainly something I understand. I, I, I'm hoping that my life uh, is is not an example of that, but I, I think that's absolutely spot on for, for what, what is happening today. And I think that um, things like Twitter and social media at large have become just not even mechanisms, but a medium like water is for a goldfish and it to to spread this around and to make this a kind of well it's it's the default position isn't it mhm it really is and there's a delicate balance that we have to strike when we talk about this because the opposite side of this are the self-help gurus and people who sort of ignore perhaps the struggles that people go through and tell you to suck everything up and to just keep going. Um, Those are potentially hard truths that can hit some people in the wrong way. However, and here's where I'm going to say something that's a bit controversial. I think that those are the only things that actually work. Sitting people down and saying, you must change your life is literally the only thing that's going to get people out of the holes that they're in. It's the only thing that worked for me. Um, And that, I think, brings us to our discussion about empathy and how prominent empathy is in our culture today. So I read this book in preparation for this episode called uh, Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. And it is a very dense book Dense, not necessarily informationally dense, although he does do his homework and provides you with many anecdotes, but Bloom is moving back and forth in this book. He's, he's, I'm not, I guess I should have done my research on this, but he seems very British about the whole thing, you know, about like, oh, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm right. But essentially what he's positing is that in recent times, empathy as a word has taken a prominence that it simply has not had over time. And he relates this very specifically to uh, President Barack Obama becoming elected in 2008. Did I get that right? I did get that right. Okay. Um, So the consciousness shifted from this kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make as much money as you can, step on anybody who gets in your way, to this idea that we have to look after our fellow man. Now, what I'm saying, the listener might think, 
what's wrong with that? What's wrong with looking after your fellow man? The problem, as Bloom articulates it, as I perceive Bloom articulating it, is that empathy unfortunately privileges the, the anecdote. It privileges the singular over the whole. So we are very easily manipulated as human beings. And when we see something that touches our, our empathy centers, this, this idea that we, that we feel bad for someone, we empathize with what they're going through, we then want to set about to fixing it through things like policy and you know, policing what people are allowed to say or aren't allowed to say. And the problem with that is that it affects the large proportion of the population for whom that anecdote has no real validity. It affects, it affects the larger group of people in a serious way. The read here is the difference between the personal level in, at which anecdote may be viable as a navigational tool versus the policy public sort of level when you blow that and expand that up. Um, I think that's a very, very interesting read uh, of, of Bloom. Um, I want to throw this sort of angle here because I think that um, the, a, a ghost behind the whole topic of, of empathy, uh, and, and we need to sort of look at that as, as a word in a moment, but, you know, Herbert Spencer and social Darwinism was a kind of contamination of, of the whole Darwinist idea. It, it really brought things down to the survival of the fittest, you know, kill or be killed, make money. You know, it was kind of it was the, the Ebenezer Scrooge versus the Jacob Marley um, revelation of, you know, Marley comes back as a ghost and says, business, mankind was my business. But to tie back to, uh, you know, this, the idea of book, because mankind was my business sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? And empathy sounds like a good thing. But when you, you talk about Bloom's idea of what that means on the, on the, the larger public civic level, well, it certainly means unfairness. It means a blurred screen. And it makes me think of, uh, you know, William Blake was just on top of so many things. But he said, you know, he would do good to another, must do it in minute particulars. General good is the plea of the scoundrel, the hypocrite, the flatterer. You know, and I think that's a really, you know, so... We start off with this, you know, this notion of, of empathy being unquestionably good. And I, I think I'm right in saying that, that Bloom copped a lot of flack when he um, when the book first came out, that everybody said, well, you, you, you can't, you know, being against empathy is like drowning puppies. You know, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think yeah. that was literally what what sort of happened. But um, so I did. Some, yeah, he, wrote, he wrote that in his book. He sure did. Well, you know, so let's break it down because we're, we're, we're language-driven, both of us. And, and empathy, one root comes from the Greeks, from pathos, which means emotion, suffering. And it's, you know, let's face it, it's in that, in that root pathology. Pathology, we've been talking about illness and mental illness, so let's not forget that. It's, it's in words like apathy and antipathy. You know, we, we think about sympathy in terms of empathy, but let's not forget apathy and antipathy. The other root is 
Einfühlung, the, a German word for in feeling. But the thing that I just have realized of late, and uh, you can see this in a linguistic analysis, empathy is a very, very recent word. It was only, it only appeared at all in actually a dissertation on aesthetics in the 1870s, and that was in German. And, and then when it was coined and it really sort of got into use in English, was in, it was just in 1909. And it didn't have any of the, the strict, narrow connotations we mean now of, oh, I empathize with you. It was about an emotional connection with the world at large, you know? So we've really, really narrowed that. And you're, you were absolutely right to, to mention uh, the Obama presidency, because if you look at a graph of, of empathy appearing in English, it just soars up as of 2000 it's suddenly this big you know media buzzword and I, I think therefore it needs to be unpacked as all buzzwords do you know so so let's let's start to kind mm -hmm. of unpack that a little bit how does that unpacking process <clears throat> begin for you the way that i would unpack it would be that empathy is largely a passive emotion. So the first thing that I think of with empathy is I think of a person who goes about their life in a very 2020 sort of way. Um, a person who uses an iPhone that is built from precious minerals in the Congo that they use children to mine because the spaces are too small for adults to get into. And using that phone to tweet about various causes that they believe in. So empathy to me feels very hollow. It feels very performative. It feels like something that you do to be seen by other people as having feelings for another person. Whereas to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier, real empathy, in my opinion, would be the ability to interact with human beings on a minute-to-minute, second-to-second basis as other human beings, which we are seeing the decline of in our public discourse. In my opinion, empathy has become a somewhat frightening code word um, for control. Interesting. So the... Yeah, the relationship between empathy and control is becoming more and more apparent every day because large governmental bodies or corporate entities can take this idea of empathy, of, of caring for other people. And well, what's the only way that we're really going to be able to make sure that everybody is properly empathized with? Well, that's through thought control making sure that people are not cruel to each other, whether it's online or in real life. So in my opinion, it's become very frightening. Okay. You know, that makes me, um, that's very, very interesting what you said, because I think that that has, I mean, what, an, uh, what a weird and perverse evolution 
the the idea behind empathy has has taken then that makes me think of you know john stuart mill you know his book on on liberty uh which covers a lot of interesting ground i mean i i every once in a while i sort of dismiss mill and, and the whole utilitarianism sort of idea but he really had some interesting things to say on the one hand he has a very optimistic take on human nature and a very he makes a very defiant critique of, of victorian era morality um and he's really a, you know a counterpoint to someone like herbert spencer but you know he talks about living under the eye of a hostile and dreaded censorship i mean can you imagine anything more topical to today to today's cancel culture and to the virtue signaling i mean that's exactly what he's talking about he's really to, to flesh out what, what you were saying before he starts with a very optimistic idea of human nature and a natural connection and cooperation between people. Uh, and and he, would, he would talk about the natural cooperation between uh, women and men, for instance, and would point to the number of people walking around as examples of that. Um, so he starts off as a believer in the, the essential, uh, if not goodness, the strength and stature of human nature but then is very worried about this sense of control that you mentioned. And I think control is, is exactly what's going on with empathy. I think that's exactly what's happened. How has that, that trend, well, that, that perverse evolution, to use my earlier phrase, how has that happened, do you think? Well, I think that it comes from the neglect of the the personal and the sovereign, essentially. I think that if you break society down into its smallest part, which is the human being, I think that you have two options in front of you, two paths towards a true empathetic existence. On the one hand, you think that people are naturally cruel and evil, and the only way to get everybody to properly empathize this is something we should maybe pick up on, but we're also with empathy. We're never talking about giving people health care or feeding them or housing them. We're talking about being kind to them, being respectful to them. That's a bit of a digression. So on one path, you have the idea that people will never do that. And so it has to be mandated by a large governmental body that will punish people for saying incorrect things or being unnecessarily cruel. That's one way you could go. Right. The other way that you could go is, again, you break it down to the smallest human capacity, right? And so you, instead of thinking, oh, the government should do something about this, you should change your life. You should become a person who is exudes power, right? You exude power to everybody around you. You're a person who has their shit together. You're a person who takes care of their family, takes care of their friends, takes care of their local community. And in a small way, you're not going to fix the problems of, you know, all the different bigotries and evilness that's out there in the world. But in your small way, you influence your, your circle. Now, if everybody did that, there would be no need to take the other path. 
So in a weird way, the path of empathy is, a, is almost a nihilistic one. It is a complete lack of belief in, in the idea that human beings are capable of taking care of their own tribe, taking care of their own health, of being good to each other when things largely are good. Right. Okay. Well, there, there, God, there's, there's some really interesting things here. We can tie back into Bloom and this polarity between the personal and the public, uh, which I want to get back to in a moment, because I think you, you told me an interesting story from your own personal life recently about that. But there are a couple of things. I mean, for one, I always say that don't use a new word, a fancy word, when there are you know, very, very sufficient, good words that everyone can relate to. And uh, I was thinking of, I don't know what, what brought this up, but the, uh, I was thinking of, the, uh, of someone with the, a complete absence of any humor and a little bit cold-blooded. And I thought of the German philosopher, Johann Ficht, who followed up on, on the work of Kant. And I, I was thinking that here's someone who's like the least sort of um, <laughs> empathetic person that I can imagine. But he said once, and I think this is a, a good example of, of an attempt at a German philosopher's humor. He said, only one man ever understood me. And he didn't understand me. And I think that like that's, but what we mean often by empathy, I think, starts with understanding. We, we don't really need to, to go somewhere else with that. I think that's, that's enough of an idea and a, and a challenge right there, isn't it, to understand someone? When we go with the, another definition of empathy, we start talking about altruism and charity, you know? And, and that got me thinking of, 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 of the story you told the other day about uh, – well, I'm going to leave you to describe the character <laughs> okay. who showed up on your doorstep like the possum, only yeah. not like the he he wanted something more than what the possum wanted. So, oh, can for you sure. just tell our listeners about that that moment? It was an Oklahoma so moment. It's a very Oklahoma moment. So, people who've been listening to the podcast know that I live in a neighborhood that has folks who are having a tough time at certain points, right? Like they maybe a little bit of meth, a little bit of booze. They they like to party. Uh, so there's been this guy who's come around a few times. Uh, he pushes his lawnmower up and down the street asking people if he can mow their lawns, which by the way, I respect. I think that's a great initiative. If you're having a, a tough time, rather than lay back and lament your situation, you go out and look for work. I think that's great. So he came to my house a few days ago and my lawn it was getting a little long, not too bad. And so he shows up and knocks on my door and I open it. And he says, uh, man, listen, I just need $10. I need $10. I can mow your lawn. Dude, come on. He's like my sister. And he looks like he's going to cry. I don't know what his sister did to him, but he seems very upset <laughs> I'm sorry, about, I'm his, laughing. about his sister. <laughs> it's a little funny. Yeah, it's funny. Um, so I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, you know what, this guy, you know, he's got, you know, tattoos on his hands and he's got this kind of like faded OU shirt. He's, he's burnt by the sun. Um, sure. You know what? I'll go get some cash from the gas station. You can mow my lawn. That's totally fine. And so he, he starts doing his thing 
and uh, I, I come back with the money and he's looking at my my doormat and so my in-laws got us this doormat that says embrace the fur upon entering because I have a dog and you know the hair is going to get everywhere and he's looking at it and he says oh embrace the fur right like that's that's like you know be respectful that's about respect and I say no man it's because I have a dog and he kind of laughs and goes back to what he's doing right so I give him you know he wanted 10 I gave him 20 bucks and you know He's like, oh man, you're doing me a, a solid. That's great, you know. And so he's like, let me mow your backyard too. So I say, okay, that's fine, you know. So he, he's mowing my backyard, and I go out back there, and uh, he's he's done mowing, and he says, do you have a like an MP3 player or something? Which is a strangely outdated thing to say, you know, right? The MP3 player, and I'm like, no. He's like, because man, I can freestyle. I can freestyle all day. I can already see where this is going. I'm like, no, man, I, I don't have. He's like, well, do you have a do you have a lighter so I can light, you know, my cigarette? And I'm like, no, sorry, man, I don't smoke. I don't I don't have a lighter. Um, and then I have this pair of shoes that I use when I'm out in my garden, and they're sitting on the stoop. And he he looks at him. He's like, oh man, those are those shoes. The man, those are freaking clean, man. Those look good. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. And he's like, can I have them? And I said no, no, they're, they're mine. He said, all right, cool, cool. And then he said, you know, thank you for helping me out. And we shook hands and he, he went on his way. But that's sort of an example of this, this empathy thing where I'll let, I'll let you mow the lawn. I'll give you money for it. That's all cool with me. But I draw the line at giving you my shoes. Well, it's a good thing you didn't see how pretty your wife is, you know, I mean, <laughs> You know, well, well, here's the thing. I mean, like, when he told me that, I, I instantly flashed on my favorite Dr. Seuss book is Fidwick, the kind hearted moose, who takes on board all these tenants and free boarders in his antlers. And he only, he gets so weighed down, he could barely move. And he only gets rid of them all because he is a kind, he's the kind hearted moose, right? He's not, he's not tough like you saying, no, listen, you can't be up in my antlers. He gets burdened to the point where he can barely move. And he only gets rid of them when he sheds his antlers in the spring. But mm -hmm. I think uh, there's a woman who uh, I, I haven't read her book, but I, I, I have, I, I've, I've got it now. It's called the art of empathy, Karen McLaren, big shout out to her. I think she's doing some interesting work. She talks about empathy in terms of emotion or emotional contagion. Contagion. I, I love that. I love that. I think that's a really important insight. Her book apparently looks at ways, strategies, and techniques for uh, enhancing or increasing empathy for those people who are, for whatever reason, lacking in it, but also for controlling it, limiting it, managing it, coming to terms with it. For people who have too much empathy, who who mm -hmm. might have let their shoes, their good gardening shoes, you know, walk off with this guy. And you might have him. I mean, I've known people who, you know, end up having someone like that sleeping on their floor, you know. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. And then they have someone ODing and it just goes on and on and on. And I don't think that's an absence of kindness. I think that's a prudence of self-protection and wisdom in the world, you know? 
Wow. You know what you just did there? I think you did an amazing thing is that you made a distinction between empathy and kindness. I think there is that, you know, to go back to, I think we have some of these really good, hard, solid, you know, Oklahoma red dirt words, and we don't need words like empathy. We've got kindness and understanding. And, you know, I think empathy is being nice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, no. I think that that is a major, major distinction because kindness has an end. Kindness will end when that kindness ceases to be reciprocated. Empathy has no end. You can empathize with somebody all the way to them owning your house if they can play you well enough. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that that's – I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that was a, a really, in my mind, super important distinction. Oh, I think it is. I, I, I think it is, and I think it's something that we intuitively all understand. And to some extent, this idea of empathy is kind of some new wallpaper put over the world that uh, really – you know, just it, it just gets in the way of things. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it also doesn't um, it, it, it isn't true. It isn't true to nature. It, it's insincere in the way that I think when we started with the right poem, I said that was in, that didn't feel sincere to me. And I, I think empathy doesn't take into consideration some things that we do acknowledge about human nature. I mean, consider this line from, I mean, I've been reading, uh, rereading Darwin and, and Wallace to compare them uh, for another project. Mine. Two, you know, they, they simultaneously, to some extent, came up with what we consider to be uh, the theory of, of evolution through natural selection. But very different men, very different backgrounds. But Darwin says, all men desire their own happiness. Praise or blame is bestowed on actions and motives according as they lead to this end. Well, okay. You, first you think, yeah, that, that makes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll nod along with that. But geez, you know, we wouldn't have had Sigmund Freud if it was that simple. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's, here's, here's another way to think about it too. Think about it in terms of corporations. So a corporation can be incredibly empathetic. A corporation can, you know, basically pretend to care about X, Y, Z. But can a corporation be kind? I think not. I think that's a very, well, that, that's a nice way of going back to Bloom and connecting the personal with, you know, the public or, or the, the larger organizational entity. I think that's a really, really interesting way to think of that. So if we if we parse that up, break it down, kindness is something that we are capable of on an individual and possibly a uh, defined community basis. But after a certain size or scale of operation, perhaps that becomes impossible. Right, right. I think so. And I think that when you get to that huge, these huge masses of people that have to eat, they have to have a home, they have to have health care, all of these things, I think empathy is the wrong way to go. Because the problem with empathy is that it's completely empty. They sound a little similar. Yes, they do. In a strange (laughs) way. Um, 
and we should not ignore that. We should not ignore the fact that certain words sound similar to each other. So empathy is a little bit empty because you can empathize all day long, but you can't, being kind is an action, right? So you can't necessarily be kind all day long. You're going to get into a situation. You know, I was, I was at the gas station the other day and it's a drive up gas station where you can buy your cigarettes and beer through a drive through. Um, and the cars that were in front of me were getting into an altercation. They were, they were fighting about something. I don't know what it was, but the, this guy was leaning out of his car and he was like, you don't tell me how to drive. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if this comes to blows and I kind of sighed to myself, I'm going to have to get out of my car and, you know, do something to stop them from killing each other. But like, no matter what they didn't. So, you know, long story short, they did not. But if they had, none of the actions that I was going to take would be necessarily, you know, empathetic, right? Like I wouldn't be empathizing with the guy who is trying to stab this other person to death and thinking, oh, well, where does he come from? And what's his background? And what did his day look like? And why is he doing all these things? I feel so empathetic for this guy, but it would have been kind to perhaps have to choke somebody out in order to stop somebody from being stabbed. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's, and that's not me balancing how empathetic I feel towards two different people because hypothetically I could feel empathy for, for both of them. I could sit in my car and do nothing feeling empathy for both sides while they kill each other. But that's not, that's not kindness. And that brings me to the, are you familiar with, uh, um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche? Only through you, yeah. Okay, okay. So they put forward this idea of idiot compassion. And this was introduced to me by a Scottish Buddhist monk when I lived in, in Portland, Oregon, who was, you know, kind of a lech and kind of a drunk and, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of not what you would think of when you think Buddhist monk. A Buddhist monk. A Buddhist <laughs> <laughs> that was good. He put this idea towards me and it made all the light bulbs in my head go off where the idea of idiot compassion is when you essentially enable a person to death. So if a heroin addict is going through withdrawals and they're crying, sweating, throwing up, begging you, please just give me the heroin, please, no matter what, idiot compassion would be giving them the drug. Now, telling them, I'm sorry, you're going to have to suffer for the next few days. I'm not entirely sure how long it takes to kick heroin. Seems awful. Um, telling them that they're going to have to just deal with it. it it's short-circuiting all of those empathetic brain signals that we would normally have. And so you can empathize people to death. And that's a huge problem. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, you know, looking at words and what's inside words, empathetic, pathetic, you know, as mm, also the mm -hmm. pathetic fallacy of, you know, I think that's absolutely right. But, you know, that that idea of enabling someone to death, you know, uh, Artie Lang said the, the only pain in life that can be truly avoided 
is the pain that comes from trying to avoid pain. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. there is that. Mm-hmm. There, there are some things that, you know, we call it a wall sometimes because we've run into one, you know. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. There, there's something really, you, you can't say, well, you know, no, you, you can have the heroin because that's never going to end anything. You know, right. that's not empathy Precisely. at all. Or maybe maybe what we're saying is that is, in fact, what empathy is and what we're really prosecuting Correct. is the idea of whether or not empathy yes. is viable at all in terms of of a genuine good. Which, yeah, we uh, came to that. We came to that at the same moment as you were saying it. I was like, that's exactly what I mean on a grand scale. So. Going back to what Artie said, that's a really eloquent Artie Lang quote, by the way. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if yeah. he's an amazing comedian, but I would not have expected that from him. Um, going back to that quote and going back to the individual who is keeping heroin from a heroin addict. So the problem, again, with empathy on a large scale is that you are never actually really fixing a problem. You are dictating that people have manners and that people do this and people do that, but you're in a weird way, you're kind of still giving, you're giving them that little dose of heroin that keeps everything terrible. Empathy is giving people that heroin on a large scale. And that's what, I hate saying the government, right? But that's what the powers that be would want us to do would want us to empathize with each other straight into our grave, straight into, you know, the world, you know, being overrun by, you know, fossil fuels, you know, heating up uh, straight into, you know, strange agendas being implemented into our lives. Like they would want to empathize us straight into hell, essentially. So I think personally, I'm not just against empathy, but I think that it's insidious. I think that it's evil. And I think we have to exercise it from our lives. Well, I like the strength of that position. That, that, uh, you know, that reminds me of, of a personal story that, that, I, that I wanted to share tonight. Sam, back to uh, you know, the dreams of, of, of high school. Um, before uh, I, I admit I, I did develop uh, some drug issues uh, thereafter, but uh, I at one point really wanted to, uh, you know, to play baseball. And uh, I, I wanted to, you know, if you're going to play baseball, the first thing you think about is being a pitcher. And uh, as it turned out, I mean, I had a chance to, um, well, the great Oakland A's Cy Young Award winner, Vita Blue, Vita Blue, he came to our practice to to watch us and to watch me. He drove up in his powder blue Cadillac. And in Oakland, I mean, he, he was a star for the Oakland A's. And for him to drive up, I mean, it was just like one of the angels had come down, you know. Mm-hmm. It was Pretty so sick. powerful. And yeah. uh, he came, you know, he said, let me see what you got. And uh I thought, well, my teammate was, you know, who's the catcher would, would be there. And no, he got behind the, you know, the plate himself. And I thought, he goes, no, I can catch too. And I thought, okay, here we go. And I was, you know, I was really about pissing myself. I mean, here I am pitching to Vita Blue, you know? Yeah, yeah. And this is not Vita Blue. 
you know, later. This is someone who's like, you know, got it. And uh, mm-hmm. so he, he gave me uh, he gave me 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he stood up and he came out to the mound and he put his arm over my shoulder and uh, he said, I'm going to tell it to you straight. And I thought, oh, I felt, I felt sick, you know, mm-hmm. I felt sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, you're an outfielder. Mm-hmm. You're an mm-hmm. outfielder. I watched you before running. You're, you're fast. People say that you're, you also get to run track. You're one of the only people who gets to do two sports in the spring. It's not normally allowed. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. He said, look, I'm going to hit some balls. You're going to shag them. You've got not a good short length arm and you don't have enough pitches. You've only really got two, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, he said, you need four at this stage minimum and you'd have to put in hours. And he said, you're never going to get it. You, you could be a great center fielder. You've got the range. You've got everything. And one of the mothers of my teammates had heard this and she took exception to it. And she said, mm. well, that's not very sensitive. Mm. And I turned to her and I said, he's Vita Blue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I... Yeah, I was a little bit, you know, when he put his arm over my shoulder at first, I thought, oh, you know, he's going to just say, look, you know, you just got your no hope, you know. But it Mm -hmm. wasn't that at all. It was tremendously positive. But he wasn't going to tell me I was going to be a good pitcher ever, you know. Mm -hmm. He wasn't going to lie. And I think, you know, in a sense, to to build on your idea that empathy is, is insidious and possibly evil, I think the mechanism for that is I think it's often a lie. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's just insincere. I don't think it's playing a role or trying to avoid censorship or virtue signaling. I think we often are lying. I think that's what's going on with it. I think that that's really important that you put it in such stark terms because I agree with that. And I think that you can kind of see that in a lot of the arts. I think that you have a community of people, specifically in the writing community, who are... How do I put this? So I don't want to get too inside baseball and lose people who might not be writers, but this might have some resonance in their particular fields. So in the writing world, writing is currently in the toilet. The book industry is in the toilet. Everybody's fighting over scraps and everybody wants to, you know, they're all competing for maybe a dozen spots that everybody wants. So in order to maintain uh, your position within this, this hierarchy and still, you know, uh, push, you know, certain people off, you mask that with empathy you tell people who are writing books that are not particularly good that they're great. So this is where, <laughs> again, this is going to sound a little conspiratorial. You'll have to forgive me for this. But I've often thought that that is actually more insidious than it looks. There's a particular author who I shall not name 
who, (laughs) (laughs) who made his career giving writing advice to people. And he was massively positive about everybody who came down his pipe. And his idea was that anybody who wanted to do it could become a writer. All you have to do is follow these steps, which are conveniently outlined in my book that's on sale on Amazon for $9.99. I've got all these tips that can get you to be a writer. This person was not acting from kindness, right? Vita Blue was acting from kindness. That was a kind act. Taking you aside and saying, this isn't your thing, but I think you're really good at this, so maybe you should do this instead, is huge. The empathetic way of doing that is to take you aside and say, man, you've you got it. You really could. You could right. be that. And then who knows? You could have spent your entire life trying to be a pitcher. You would have missed out on this rich, amazing life that you've lived, um, and you could be you know, dying in a trailer with you know, three kids who hate your guts drinking a six pack of Miller high life every evening while you fall asleep watching Dr. Phil reruns, right? That could, that could have been what happened. And in the writing community, and this is why I get so (laughs) incensed about this. This was the, this was the seed of this idea. And this is what gets me so incensed about it is that the people who sort of disingenuously promote the careers of people who are not good writers, and this is a topic for another time, but I do think that writers are on the level of athletes. I think that some have it and some don't. And I think that that's, that's maybe a very unpopular opinion because it's, it's, people think that it's something that can be taught or that you can get better at. I think it's the same as baseball. I think that you can learn to throw a mean fastball that doesn't mean anything when you get to the major leagues. Um, so anyway, so when people in the writing world, they don't want to be seen as unempathetic. They want to be <sighs> these caring, nice people. So they'll prop up the writing of people who just can't do it. They just can't put a sentence together. And they're doing that not because they want people to believe in themselves, but they're doing it very explicitly. Number one, number one, to feel better about themselves, to get rid of that inner self-hate that would come with being honest with people. Number two, to be seen being empathetic by other people. But here's where the insidiousness comes in. Back to that author who's selling those those tips and, and tricks books. That's his bread and butter. What would you, what, how would you make money If everybody who couldn't write, you told, hey, you're not a writer, and they stopped writing, they would stop buying your books. Does that make sense? It it certainly does. But, you know, here here's another thing. And I I, I think that we see this in the teaching of the arts. Uh, Well, many sports, too. Let's look at that as a composite thing. But I, I think a lot of people, for instance, in the field of music, get discouraged early because they think, well, they're not going to be a professional musician. But nevertheless, they could be enjoying music as a listener and as a, as a player their whole lives. So something about these activities, you know, that very few people can make their living 
out of anything. I mean, I've known some, and you maybe too, I've known some great, great athletes who still nevertheless aren't the household names of, you know, superstars. But, you know, Jesus, you know, if you had to run against them, you know, uh, you'd think, wow, you know, <laughs> they're really, really fast, you know. Um, I mean, there was this guy that uh, Lee Charles McDaniels, who I think he still works for the Chargers as a uh, as a backfield coach, but he was he was a, just a star in track, and uh, he would have his name on the bottom of his shoes because that's what you'd see when he ran past you. That was his thing, you know. And uh, I mean, Millard Hampton, who won two, he won a gold and he won a silver medal in the Olympics, and. Uh, I, I ran, I, I, he was older and uh, it was a real honor to run against him on a really, really hot night in central California at the sectionals. And man, he was from Silver Creek High School, which was called Speed School because they had the baddest track team. They were like outside of the LA area. They were the, they were the best school in California, best, best public school. And man, to see him run the curve in the 440 relay was just like watching a thoroughbred. Just, I mean, it was it was like watching Walter Payton turn the corner in football. He, it was just one beautiful thing. You think there aren't many people who have that in that world, you know, that just to be that kind of a superstar. Or, or to be, you know, a, a pianist like Glenn Gould or whoever, you know. But that doesn't mean that you can't really enjoy and appreciate that genius and and the activity of it. But somehow, when it comes to writing, particularly, everybody has to be treated like, you know, a great author. And you think, wait a mm -hmm. minute, that just doesn't mm -hmm. work. You know? Yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem. I mean, you, uh, you know, the question is, is empathy really a moral stance? And I well think that that, is so, that is so radical to the conversations that we're having, but is it actually moral to be empathetic? And then you said this to me, uh, is it respectful? <laughs> that's the, uh, that's the huge thing right now. Is being empathetic actually respectful to people who you and I, we both have a magical perspective on what human beings are and how they live in the world, their relationship. We recognize them as infinitely complex uh, sort of rhizomatic beings that are this confluence of perhaps trillions of different feelings and interactions and neural signaling all at once, right? And the, the real respect and kindness that comes is in recognizing people like this holistically. And empathy, I would say, shrinks everything down to a box. You'll see this all the time with people who are the champions of empathy in our modern society. They want to turn every person, every group into a buzzword that you're immediately supposed to feel something for, you know? So it's, we talked earlier about how empathy is very anecdotal, but what empathy does is it takes the anecdotal and puts that in an umbrella-like way 
around an entire group of people. So is that really kind or respectful to an individual? No, it's completely generic. Yeah, I would would agree with you, you know? And I think that that is the major issue that we're facing right now in this country is anything that generalizes and infantilizes people is probably bad. And that's what empathy does. I think that's well said. I think that it's the the infantilization of our culture. That's the rubric. That's the bigger rubric, which we may get to. Uh, I, I think that's worth pursuing maybe next episode because that's that's the door or the crack that empathy has snuck in. You know, mm-hmm. and it, it's starting to uh, to remind me of some animal that's crept into that house next door to you and it it really it may still be alive and attracting flies but it it's not something that you you want to uh to really be associated with it um Mm -hmm. because i I think it, it, it it is more than just generic um it's more than just caring or kindness directed with a focused vector of 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 real engagement it's it's a way not to be engaged you know mm-hmm. no that's precisely it you nailed it that freaking that nailed it right there it is it's people have mistaken empathy as a way to be engaged in modern society when it is precisely the opposite it is the writing off of the extremely individual stories that make up our lives it's to use a term that I'm very fond of, it is arconic. It is the middle managementalization. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but I just coined it. Uh, it's it's turning everything into middle management. We've all had middle managers that we've had to deal with who have to overly sympathize things because they are the proxy between the bosses who just want to make money and the people who are real. And in the middle, you have you have middle management who has to provide uh, both a a clean, kind story to their bosses and hard rules to make that story true to the workers. And we are currently living in an age where everybody has become this middle management, where you can show up on the work site for a few moments a day and gently chastise people, sometimes not even gently. Sometimes you can just straight up chastise them. And then go to the people in charge and say, look, everything's taken care of. We are a very caring, kind, these are these are false words, right? And then here's the real word, empathetic company that does something good for people. That's the problem that we're experiencing right now, is that it's, it's anti-magic, it's anti-life, um, and I am staunchly against anything that is anti-life real life is ugly it's complicated it's tough to get through isn't it well yes and it's beautiful because of the toughness sometimes and it gives us purpose and motivation and it's in fact those struggles they're exactly what gives us what empathy claims to in terms of connection with other people It gives us Mm -hmm. that understanding. It gives us that congruence. You know, congruence is, I think, Mm -hmm. a lovely word. Fitting together, 
You know, mm-hmm. it, that's what what makes us understand people is the fact that we've, you know, you can't get to it unless you've been through it, you know, and that's right. To say that you're just empathizing, you know, generally with the world. I mean, that sounds what does that matter to me? Actually. You know, to take an Oklahoma phrase, it's like, you know, you know, shit in one hand and empathize in the other and see which one fills up faster. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's kind of, it's, you know, uh, I don't know. I get so riled up about this kind of thing. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, empathy is this kind of thing where you can live your whole life and you can sort of hollowly espouse the values that you think that you have without ever having to get your hands dirty and actually interact with people and actually do something that could make other people's lives better, which is often hard. It's often not very easy. You know, we've been brainwashed by Hallmark to think that if you just say the right things, then everybody will just be okay. But it's that, it's that tension between those two poems again in the right poem. It says, you know, I have wasted my life. Well, at the end of the day, the structure that you live in, that you clock into every day, doesn't care whether or not you've wasted your life, ironically or not. Now, the Rilke poem says you must change your life. That's upending the whole thing. That is flipping the table. Right. That's saying, listen, I'm tired of hearing you complain about these things. I'm tired of the answer being so clear. It's right there. The answer is to turn off your phone, turn off your computer, and go lift some weights or go for a run or go for a swim or take your shoes and your socks off and put your feet in soil and reconnect to where you are. It's about talking to your neighbors. It's about being invited over for a home cooked meal and all the strangeness that comes along with that. I don't like whenever I go over to a friend's house and they cook me a meal, it feels so different from when I go to a restaurant or when I make food myself. It's like I'm being invited into their own world, you know, but this sterilization, this thought process that would want to keep us eating at McDonald's, which by the way, is a very empathetic company right now. Sure. The sterilization process that will slowly kill you with vegetable oils and will slowly suck the life out of every worker that is unfortunate enough to have to work for it. That kind of, Empathy is doing nobody any good whatsoever, but get like kicking their door in like you're the FBI (laughs) and getting somebody up off their couch and saying, listen, dude, we are going outside. We are going to Lake Thunderbird. We're going to drink some beers and light a fire and swim and hopefully not get eaten by the alleged giant squid that lives in Lake Thunderbird. Um, That is that's kindness. That is taking responsibility for your fellow human. And it's not this sterile middle management bullshit empathy that we are currently being inundated with. Well said and amen. You know, I think that's really the bottom line. I blacked out. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's just so much that's good there. You know, I hope that people have connected with uh, what we've been trying to to say here in in a way that is 
positive, but not empathetic because right. uh, David and I have discovered that we're, we're anti-empathy and uh, <laughs> I, I feel much better for coming completely out on that front. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Just, we're out just, of the closet. Yep, just just completely out of the closet on that one, and we're. I think we can we can lead the way forward on that um, because some ideas come to mind about you know in in very practical terms, which we could perhaps bring up next episode, of where this leads us in terms of very very down to the Oklahoma red dirt and the Las Vegas desert sense of practical interactions with people, but also with ourselves, the things that we say to ourselves. I, I, I like how you, you often speak about what you say to yourself, um, because I think that's, of course, where we begin our conversation with the world, isn't it? If, if we're having deception, uh, there's a great word, illusion, which is not illusion, I-L-L, and it's not the literary illusion. It's spelled E-L-U-S-I-O-N, which means self-impersonation. Beautiful hmm. idea. Beautiful idea. Mm. Playing a role. If we are doing that with ourselves, alone in the privacy of our own <laughs> strange dream, then we're going to just continue playing that role, of course, in the world. And we perpetuate and amplify the lie. We, we build up that insincerity until it's kind of like this enormous barnacle encrusted thing that we're putting forward in the world and claiming that it's soft and gentle and friendly and inclusive. Or, you know, inclusive is that big word. Everything's got to be inclusive now, you know. And... Uh, isn't it funny that, that discrimination is not, not supposed to be good, but yet you're supposed to have discriminating taste, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of, mm -hmm. you know, fine wines and literature and, you know, all sorts mm -hmm. of things. If you're not discriminating, well, you're going to poison yourself with some weird, you know, shit. you, you got to be looking around. So we've got this weird confusion in our culture about being inclusive, open to everything, being warm and friendly and fuzzy and, you know, it's God empathetic. I mean, that's empathy. Yep. That's empathy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's empathy. Whereas like a true kindness would be a sort of perhaps animalistic competition, right? Not capitalistic competition. Too often these things are equated. The idea of competition and it's, you know, it's the fault of, you know, the Reagan years that we now think of competition as being synonymous with, with capitalism. But there's a third way, which we can get into at a later date. But I, I truly do believe there is a third way of doing things where we are individuals, where we are sovereign and where we are competing with each other. We are honest with each other, uh, but we are also genuinely kind to each other and we genuinely have real friendships and outside of friendships, because you can only have so many friends, we're actually, you know, just just a group of people who love each other and do things out of love. That that's, starts that's with kind respect. of a dirty word right now. Yeah. Well, it starts I, with respect, precisely. 
I think I think love is is a good word that we should maybe start with next. I'm trying to recoup that. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, one of my uh, this might be a nice way to sort of wind things up. One of my students sent me. Uh, she's I, I've I've read quite a bit of the book. Um, she she's openly trying to write a great lesbian love story, uh, mm-hmm. and to recoup the idea of a love story. But the first sentence of the, of the book is, is, is I think really lovely. And it goes, the first time I met her, the world smelled like a cornfield after a rain. I've never been anywhere near a cornfield, but I'm sure. Mm, and I that's think beautiful. that's kind of a nice starting point to, I mean, we don't know who she's talking, you know, we don't, we're going to feel our way into the story, but we get something of where we're going with that. And uh, I, I think that, that love would, would be an interesting topic to take on in our, you know, irony poisoned uh, era where, where only the Hallmark channel gets to talk about love. But I think that where we've kind of wound up tonight is that really it, it, the core is respect and sincerity, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and empathy is counter respect, counter sincerity, uh, and it's as you said, I think it's deeply anti magic and ultimately anti life. Well, that's great. Um, before we go, do you want to get to some email? You want to get to the email? We can do one email, maybe. You want to do that on this episode, or sure? Or save it for no, the next no, time? let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, Share cool, that cool, one. cool. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. So we had a good email come in um, from somebody who wishes to remain anonymous, but it says, "Hey, JDO and Chris, no country lifts my spirit every week. It has been quite abysmal during these troublesome times. My world has shifted since January." I was curious behind the story of Chris's failed anthropology. I am an oceanologist, and during this quarantine, I discovered I didn't want to become a fossil plankton expert academic, at least not to sell my body and soul to publish relatively safe papers. Before, I only thought of undergraduate, graduate, doctorate lifestyle. The university model will probably sink during the next couple of years. Therefore, graduate school in anthropology, ethnogeology, ethno-oceanography, ethno-whatever may not be an option. I don't wish to bash academia or anything, but I always catch this little dictator inside my head trying to legitimize every stance I take, adding an ology at the end so it can exist. It bugs me a little. So I thought of quote, swordsmanship without sword, end quote, approach, of becoming my own thing. I'm still a stupid, uh, that's a typo person, I guess, who knows everything, mid-20s kind of dude, but you get the main idea. I haven't read much, but Moby Dick is my favorite book, and it also carries the exportability quotient to it. The sea cannot be extrapolated. The flood hasn't ended. This year also feels like V by Thomas Pynchon trying to turn the organic into the inorganic and the whole fetish thing trying to further imprint the binary thinking into us. Anyway, sorry for the live blog. I hope the podcast carries on and someday the topic of the sea or the hollow earth may come up. Cheers and kisses from Mexico. Keep doing the good work. So that was a great email. I really liked that email. That's fantastic. And it kind of touches on what we're talking about. Yeah, it's kind of t- touching on what we've been talking about this episode, right? Uh, when when this person says, um, tr- 
trying to turn the organic into the inorganic, I think you can make a direct through line into trying to turn, you know, the kind and the human and, and, you know, these interactions into the empathetic. Exactly. Right? Oh, the I empathetic think that's beautiful. to me is, yeah, the empathetic to me is inorganic. It's a rule. It's a middle manager sitting you down and having a stern talk with you. And the empathetic is the enemy of, of just of the real, you know, of Vita Blue putting his arm around you and saying, look, man, you're an outfielder. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's. I think that's that's exactly. There is a definite through line, you know. It's it's this weird, you know, inductive movement, you know, isn't it? That that's really taking you away from everything concrete, everything immediate, personal, real, to some sort of level of of pretty perverse abstraction, and then to then to make a moral claim that that's somehow good, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. What would you think about this person saying that they that they are interested in things, but they're conflicted about it being an ology, right? Like, what would you say to that person? I really, really understand that, and I think they're on a they're they're at a personal sort of watershed crisis moment of seeing what they're truly interested in from a new point of view. I love that idea of swordsmanship without the sword. Uh, they sound like they're about to make a kind of interdisciplinary leap of 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 the imagination to finding a new way to approach what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think a, you know a lot of uh, well, the most interesting minds have had that crisis where they've had to rethink what they're doing. And I think the ology thing there is is a real rejection of some uh, academic-style pigeonholes and increased specialization that is just killing off uh, whole fields of study by too narrowly defining them. And they're closing a lot of minds. I think it's a terrible thing. So that that has to be resisted. But that that narrowing, that pigeonholing kind of thing, that is strangely related to this this culture of empathy. It's trying to overpackage and to overwrap some things that that just don't need that. Certain people should be doing certain things. So this is a big empathetic idea that has been put forward to us in in recent years, and the idea that you know, in in order to do something like you know, oceanology or something like that, you have to be a person who has followed these certain steps to get to the point. Well, what if you're not? What if you're a person who has just had a very esoteric and strange interest in deep sea fish? How much do you have to actually learn? How much do you have to become a part of the, you know, the oceanography establishment to pursue your particular interest in perhaps the the, the metaphoric value of a deep sea fish? Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, the people who are the great scientists in the life sciences are people who, you know, they're just obsessed with getting their hands dirty or look, looking at the stars or, you know, they're, they're on a level of, of just passionate connection that's well outside of, of any frame. I mean, look at all the great uh, scientists of, of the 19th century. Really, they were all gifted amateurs. 
Admittedly, some of them were aristocrats and had money to pursue that, but they didn't need that sort of academic frame. And I, I love how this goes, you know, this uh, listener was talking about Moby Dick. I mean, think about that. I mean, Melville wrote that when he was 31. Imagine if somebody had said, look, you can't have a, a whaling ship captain speaking like the King James Version of the Bible and Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> it, it's just right? not, and, 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 and believing in Zoroasterism, you know, uh, I mean, it's just not going to be credible. I mean, imagine somebody would say that today, like that guy you were talking about is writing the, the 999 book on, 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 you know, tips for writing. You no, know, you have to have a credible voice. I mean, uh, a whaling ship captain is not going to speak, you know, like, you know, the King James Version of the Bible and Shakespeare. Correct. Well, right, right. that's the whole point. Build authority. Build authority. What, what, what does authority mean when you're writing? You know, is authority just, you know, pertaining to realism or is authority being so confident in what you're doing that you don't give a shit what other people think about what you're doing, you know, that's, that's the big trick there. Well, it's, you know, you, you, I mean, in terms of literature, you know, you look at the, the books that really, really endure, they break all the rules. I mean, every mm -hmm. once in a while, I, I reread, you know, Don Quixote, which may be the first novel in, in the tradition of the novel, but it's certainly one of the finest. And every mm -hmm. time I'm surprised at how much of the damn story takes place in the inn. In other words, a story within a story within a story, you know, like the thousand and one nights, you know, the whole idea of framing. The inn is almost never described. We know nothing. We barely know that it's a two story building. Mm -hmm. It breaks all the, oh, you've got to have context. You've got to, you know, mm -hmm. you've got to give us background. We've got to be taken into the scene. It's like, no, mm -hmm. you don't. I mean, or, you know, Cervantes just right. said, well, you know, sorry, I didn't get that lecture. Uh, I was kind of before all the lectures, you know. Um, mm -hmm. All the great stuff just breaks the rules, you know, because it, right. it isn't interested <laughs> in being made into that frame, that formula. It's, it's always breaking outside that, you know. It reminds me of a book that came out last year. Maybe it was two years ago. Uh, it was about XXX Tentacion, who was a 18 year old rapper who was murdered uh, in his car. He was shot to death. Um, kind of an emo rapper type guy. Um, this guy Jarrett Kobeck wrote a book called "Do Everything Wrong" about I this like kid. That. And and there's a line in that book that I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember it exactly, but he says, you know, in a world. He's, he's, he's talking about how this kid managed to rise to fame so quickly, and unfortunately his life was cut short, but you know he, he rose to fame this quickly. He said, you know, in a world that prizes doing everything the right way, do everything wrong. I love that title. I love that title. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it's uh, – just to carry this on for a moment because, you know, I, I think there's something interesting here. Uh, you know how we've been talking about uh, the either-or subject-object or subject-predicate subject uh, binary mm -hmm. connecting back to, to Aristotle? I was thinking about this a little bit. That, that's kind of unfair. Aristotle gets blamed for an awful lot, mainly because the Middle Ages uh, and the scholastics just 
the the Catholic scholastics and Aquinas just kind of went apeshit over him. But really, the the idea of of binary oppositions goes back to the pre-Socratics, uh, to Anaximander and to Pythagoras. But mm-hmm. um, their idea was not to pit binaries in terms of uh, irreconcilable differences, but to establish balance and harmony. And mm-hmm. Anaximander, when um, which is hard to pronounce, Anaximander uh, was the I, was the first geographer who gave us the idea of of laws, the idea of a natural law. But he didn't give it to us as a way of restricting thought. He gave it as an idea of how to find things that don't fit as a way of inquiring further. So do mm-hmm. everything wrong fits into exact. He wasn't saying, well, this is only the way to see things. It wasn't a pigeonholing thing. It was a way to advance, to move forward, to look at new things. It was a guide for the extended journey. Mm. But anyway. Um, that's great. Oh, that's great. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. Um, please do send your emails to the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com. We've gotten a bunch of emails that have been very nice and and we appreciate any nice thing that you have to say, any kind thing, but certainly not empathetic thing that you have to say. But we really do kind of prize these uh, thoughtful emails that um, make us think and make us talk. So, So if anything that we've said in the past few episodes of the show really resonates with you, send those through. Uh, keep sending the cool stuff. We are really excited about the response that the podcast is getting. So you don't have to put your arm around our shoulders like Vita Blue. You can you can just you can just send nice things too. But uh, <laughs> but on that note, um, follow me at brbjdo on Twitter. Follow him at Chris Sacknessem. That's K R I S S A K. N-U-S-S-E-M at Twitter. Chris, uh, until next time, thanks so much. This has been uh, this has been great. Thanks a lot, David, and thank you to our listeners. Yes, we're certainly enjoying it. We do want to hear from you. Thank you very much. <laughs>